Hello, welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about, broadly, Wizards and TTRPGs based on a thing. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? <laughs> based on a thing. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I decided to stream that I shouldn't, I shouldn't give the full explanation. But anyway, go on. Sorry. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's a really complicated explanation. On this podcast, we like to talk about games. Okay. And it's been a while since we've done a really crunchy tabletop you know, RPG episode, and I guess that's what we're doing today. Just like a super, super crunchy thing. Because on the, this is on the Pathfinder subreddit, right? On the Pathfinder subreddit. Um, technically on Twitter, but yes. Technically on Twitter, or right? Te- yeah, technically got, on X. Oh my God, kill my, uh, <laughs> Michael Sayer, who is a design manager for Paizo, kind of broke out this thread where he had some really interesting thoughts about uh, like wizards and spellcasters as and and class design and stuff like that. Um, there's two of them. I linked them in the announcement on the Discord if you wanna if you wanna like look and pay attention. But I'm very I'm just really interested in sort of the thought process here because I think I disagree with. Well, I don't know that I disagree. I I think a lot of this maybe is, j- yeah. I would say I think a lot of this has to do with one of your favorite topics, which is class fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. Which is mm-hmm. what the core of this is to 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 kind of give a a quick summary, basically Sayer's point is he's talking about PF1E, um, that the Arcanist was actually not as powerful as either, it's like a sing, it's a, the, this, these classes were hybrid classes, and the Arcanist was mm-hmm. to be a hybrid between the Sorcerer and the Wizard. And his claim is that the Sorcerer and the Wizard are not, or rather the Arcanist is not as powerful as either the Wizard or the Sorcerer, but it is um, easier to use. And so it led to the perception of it being more powerful. And it goes into this kind of long thing, primarily about basically spellcaster fantasy archetypes, right? Like class fantasies is probably the right term to use. Um, and also the relative power levels around them. Basically being that, like, the wizards... Wizards are very powerful because you have always have a lot of tools available to you. Um, whereas sorcerers kind of get a little bit more of that kind of, like, uh, you know mage kind of like fantasy um and then he brings to mind that the kineticist is kind of like the pure blaster version which is not a thing i had thought about before but like i had always thought about kineticist is kind of like a, a like a like a bender from avatar but like it mm-hmm. makes sense that like that what they were trying to um uh the, the fantasy they were trying to invoke was like kind of like the elemental wizard as a blaster right like as like lena from dota right um that kind of thing uh, yeah, you, where it's like it's just you're just hitting, you're hitting hard. You're you are ranged to deepest, okay, and you're doing the damage specifically with like fireballs, right? Like you you yeah. are the you are the fireball wizard, right? Um, you are the I think this is kind of mostly the mold that um that like a World of Warcraft wizard falls into, right? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean it's very interesting thinking about this in sort of World of Warcraft terms, but I'm gonna leave that on the table for a second. Um, because I am interested in your thoughts on the core conceit. Like, do you agree? I think I disagree with him about Arcanist Wizard and Sorcerer for a kind of fundamental way that I'm sure it will it, it, it it's it's like a framing issue. I think we're all describing the exact same thing, but in my opinion, He's describing, he is ascribing power to something, or ascribing away power from something that I think generates power, if that makes sense, right? Interesting. Um, So here here is, uh, let me me see if I can, what what did he actually say about 
<sighs> the Arcanist was regarded by many to be a very strong class. The thing is, it actually wasn't. For a player with even a modicum of system mastery, the Arcanist was a strictly worse than either of the classes who informed its design, the Wizard and the Sorcerer. The Sorcerer had significantly more spells to draw around, and the Wizard had both a faster spell progression and more versatility in its ability to prepare for a wide variety of count, uh, encounters. Both classes were strictly better than the Arcanist if you knew PF1 well enough to play them to their potential. This is his, this is core claim. I disagree with this, right? Um, because, and I think this would be the argument that like a Paizo designer would give to say that all three of these are quote unquote balanced, right? Which is the flexibility is power, right? Um, if that, if that makes sense. And I feel like he maybe will have, you know, kind of uh, address this a little bit later on. But I want to I want to set the stage for people who don't necessarily know. So in Pathfinder 1E, right, the advantage of playing a sorcerer is you get the most number of spell slots, right? You can cast more than anyone else can cast. However, the downside is you can only cast from a list of strict spells that you know, and you cannot alter that list easily if you ever alter it at all, right? Well, Generally I mean, speaking, you, you can alter you can't alter it in a short time frame. Correct. Yes. You you alter it on level ups, which is the kind of thing that happens once every couple of sessions, and you alter it in incredibly minor ways, right? Where you like get rid of one or two, um, you know. And it's a small like, pool to begin with, right? Like it's like I think it caps out yes. like three per level. Uh, yeah. Uh, a wizard is sort of the opposite. Wizards get fewer numbers of spell to casts, but for, uh, there's actually a third track here, which is that sorcerers also get higher level spells slower. So a uh, a fifth level wizard is going to get level three spells, but I think a sixth level sorcerer gets level yeah. three spells, right? It's just a, t a tiny bit slower um, to get the 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 stronger level of spell slots. A wizard gets a faster progression and... Um, they, oh, and I'm sorry, one last thing about, uh, sorcerer, sorcerers have essentially at will, they can, they, they can cast at any time, any spell they want in, in their spell slot, they just cast it, right? That's it. It's good. They cast it kind of thing. Wizards are prepared spellcasters, um, so they get a faster progression and a much wider variety of spells. Wizards can literally cast everything on their list if they have it in their spellbook, theoretically a, a limiting resource, but nobody ever plays it that way, right? You, you are functionally, you have a functionally infinite resource of spells if you're playing a wizard, right? Um, they are limited, though, by preparation at the beginning of a day a wizard needs to propel to prepare all of the spells that they are going to cast in that day and they cannot alter that prepared list once once they once it is set in stone right so if a wizard is going to wake up in an inn and he's going to go you know what I want to make sure I can cast a bunch of fireballs today. If he goes out adventuring and runs into a bunch of fire elementals that are immune to fire, he is out of luck. He cannot change those fireball spell slots to lightning bolt spell slots in order to do to deal damage to fire elementals. He just has to live with the fact that his fireballs aren't going to do any damage, and that is a essentially wasted spell slot for his day, right? The Arcanist threads the needle between the two of these, right? Um, the Arcanist draws from a um, draws from the same list that the wizard does at the beginning of his day and prepares a spell list, right? Um, but the spell list is one he can cast from fluidly. So, for instance, a wizard um, maybe maybe prepares 
all fireballs in their in their third level spell slot, right? So even though the wizard knows lightning bolt, he has only prepared fireballs, and each spell slot has to be a fire, fireball when he casts it, essentially. An arcanist can prepare both fireball and lightning bolt as his third level spells from the day, but he can use all of his spell slots to do either or, right? Um, which is a little bit like the sorcerer, right? Except for he can alter this spell list every day, essentially. Yeah, um, he gets for a that, spell book he, like a wizard, but... Yeah, he, yeah, he gets a spell book like a wizard. There's some uh, there's other class features to all of this, but we're not going to get into any of that stuff, right? This is just about the spell casting nature right. of, their, of their casting, right? This, so this, this is, is how all three classes... Like yeah, the Arcanist works like the way the wizard does in BG3 and I think in D&D 5e, um, because, just as a point of reference. Um, I don't play a wizard in 5e, so I don't know if that's actually how it Well, works. actually, well, so I actually don't think the Arcanist works the way... In Battlegr in I'm sorry, in Baldur's Gate, you can alter your prepared spells at any time. I guess that's... I always, So I thought that, that was like a bug, right? Like, because... Like, I... I thought like altering your, your. I thought you were only supposed to be able to alter your prepared spells, like, like I thought. I thought they weren't supposed to take until you rested. Cause okay. Because other, otherwise, you're just like a sorcerer with extra clicks, right? Yeah, that's also what I what I thought. I I don't know if that's intended or a bug, but in Baldur's Gate, essentially, let's say let's say it is a bug. That would be how an arcanist works, right? Where um. Uh, the intention is at the beginning of your day, you set your prepared spell list, but you can cast any spell off of your spell list whenever, you know, like assuming you have the appropriate whatever. slot to cast it out of. Exactly. Assuming you have the appropriate slot to cast it out of, right? If you have a third level spell slot, you can cast fireball or lightning bolt as long as you prepared fireball and lightning bolt as your spell list for that day. That's how Arcanist works. Um, I understand. I understand the idea that he's getting at, right? Which is that on their, on their face, it seems as though sorcerer and wizard are both more powerful specifically because with sorcerer, you just blast, right? You just you, basically, or you, you yeah, do like, the thing that you have, you build your character, you do certain things well and you do those things. Yeah. 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 And wizards, the, one of the problems with the wizards, probably the most frustrating thing if you're a wizard, right? Um, is this fireball situation that I'm kind of like talking about where you prepare a list of spells, right? And then, um, you walk into an encounter and maybe, maybe you have your fireball, but you roll low or something like that. You just roll all ones. Your fireball does six damage rather than you know, 36 damage, that kind of thing, right? Um, or even an average of, of damage for what that'd be, right? You know, if you're, the, well, I guess you can cast a fireball at level three. You'd have to do 5d6 at, at minimum. Um, let's say you cast your five fireball, I'm sorry, 10d6. You cast your fireball, it deals 10 damage, right? This is absolute minimum damage. Wow, that sucks. You can't just cast another one, but a sorcerer can. A sorcerer can cast as many fireballs as he has spell slots, and if his first fireball whiffs, well, that's fine. Just keep just keep casting more basically this is the benefit of playing a sorcerer you can just keep casting you have a lot of extra spell slots to cast from which tends to translate to bigger output um the problem with the problem with sorcerer is that you don't have access to sort of like the really wide-ranging utility that a wizard has access to where a wizard can prepare things in such a way um that they kind of have access to both damage but also like the extensive utility um of just a massive arcane list right um if you can defeat an encounter by gaseous form is a good example of this this is like a pure utility spell but like it's the kind of thing where if you're playing, um, 
and you run into an issue where gaseous form solves a bunch of problems, uh, a wizard who has prepared gaseous form is probably going to be doing way better than a sorcerer who has gaseous form on his spell list. Because gaseous form is an uncommon enough utility spell that is kind of a waste of a wizard's or a sorcerer's spell known right. uh, a lot of the time uh, but a wizard can just ca ca but a wizard can just prepare it when he thinks it's going to be useful right um, and when that happens boom he's good and he and he kind of and he kind of nails it um, the thing about Arcanist that uh, Michael Sire is describing, he has this thing. He says, what the Arcanist had going for it was that it was extremely forgiving. It didn't require anywhere near the same level of system mastery to excel. You could make a lot of more mistakes, both in building it and while playing it, and still feel powerful. You could adjust your plans a lot more easily on the fly if you hadn't done a very good job planning in advance. The class's ability to, to elevate the player rather than requiring the player to elevate the class made it quite popular and created the general impression that it was very strong. I do think that's a legitimate that's a that's just like a legitimate strength of the the class. That flexibility is legitimate power, right? Being because part of RPG design is being able to react to unknowns, right? Um sure. being able to if you if you know what you're gonna go fight every single, you know, every single session, that's probably boring and uninteresting, right? Um and part of what, you know, makes for a good strategy like strategic experience is dealing with unknowns as they crop up right um and giving the arcanist a wider array of power to pull from in order to deal with that is legitimate power that's kind of my that's kind of my like piece that i disagreed with with michael sayer about it but i don't know how you felt yeah um i so i think like the the I think his point. I, th I think his point is correct in that if you know how to min-max a wizard, it will be more powerful than an equivalent arcanist. Um, and I think that, like, I think the thing you are talking about is true, but that's because, like, like to to his point, right? Like, without any system mastery, the arcanist is more powerful because they have that flexibility built in, and you don't have to think about it. Right, like an optimized wizard is fucking nuts. Right, like an optimized anything in Pathfinder is is nuts. And I'm, I think part of this, I think part of the thing that I might slightly disagree with him is like the the point. It's not because the Arcanist isn't um, doesn't have the potential to be as powerful. It's because the Arcanist came at the end of the PF one E life cycle and didn't have time for enough feats to build up to make it like you know to, to like you know, do the thing to Arcanist that you could yeah do just like make it like Giga nuts right yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, to be fair, I do think the Arcanist is powerful for another reason, which is that when it comes to non-spellcasting power, I think the Arcanist has the most powerful engine outside of its spellcasting. The arcane points or whatever that it can spend, I think, is better than uh, sorcerer class features most of the time. Um, and it's absolutely better than wizard spell schools features, right? Uh, I think both of those are comparatively pretty weak, um, but the Arcanist has this really powerful um, the, like meta magic on the fly thing that it does uh, so, with those points. So the issue is that the, the school feature that is powerful for a wizard is mostly in the extra spell slot, right? You get an extra spell slot oh, sure. with, with like, you know, a spell of your school in it, right? Which is like actually very powerful because spell slots are, are a limited resource um 
But yeah, because yeah, sorcerers can do some stuff um, that is uh, that is like cool and neat, like draconic sorcerers turning into dragons, getting a fly speed, all that right. other kind of stuff. But I just feel like the ability to manipulate your the way that your spells are being cast with those arcane points um, is really is really good. <laughs> At least when I was when we were talking about the arcanist a long time ago. But I think I, I think I see what you're saying because like because something he talks about is skill ceiling and skill floor, which I do think is real, right? Um, this is sort of like the League of Legends idea that like playing Master Yi at bronze is broke, yeah. like he's broken, right? Um, and maybe playing I don't know <sighs> Yasuo, Alistar, right? These traditionally high skill ceiling champions um, were was really was much much harder, right? Um, and so even though you, you would never see Master Yi in an LCS game, Master Yi is still sort of balanced around this skill ceiling, skill floor stuff, um, which I think is, which I think is sort of fair enough, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I, 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 I get that. No, and, and, but I, I think that the kind of the more interesting part here though, is like what feeds into like what players expect out of a thing called a wizard um, and like, like that, that was actually probably the most important thing or the most interesting thing to me was like, I was talking about the kineticist briefly before, right? Like if you called the kineticist a wizard, I could buy that. But like that has like so much like essentially psychological baggage attached to it that, uh, that it's, that it's an issue for the system. Does, does that make sense? Like that, that yeah. So he, he talks about this fantasy, um, this is, there's this fantasy piece. Yeah. Oh, da, ba, da, ba, da, ba, da. I mean, a lot of this comes down to fancy and magic being very popular when D&D was invented and is, like, not the way that anybody besides D&D players think about magic right now. Um, yeah, it's been uh, many years in editions of multiple games since uh, things that were actually balance points in older editions were true of D20 spellcasters. D20 tabletop RPG wizards generally have a humongous breadth of spells available to every single individual spellcaster, and their only cohesive the theme is magic. They are expected to be able to do almost anything except heal, and even specialists in most fantasy t t tabletop RPGs of the last couple decades are really generalist with an extra bit of flavor and flair in the form of an extra spell slot or ability dedicated to a particular theme. That's definitely very true, right? Yeah. Where it's, it is about, um, you know, having be being able to use a wizard to solve just like a gazillion different problems is like a very real thing. Where's the part where he talks about Jack Vance though? Uh, cause that's in here and it is super interesting. Do, do. Oh, so if you want the fantasy of a wizard and want a balanced game, but also don't want to have the game force you into having to use particular strategies to succeed, how do you square the circle? I suspect the best answer is change your idea of what a wizard must be. Uh, D20 fantasy tabletop RPG wizards are heavily influenced by the dominating presence of D&D and, to a significantly lesser degree, the works of Jack Vance. Jack Vance being a famous D&D. Here's the Dragonlance guy, right? Yeah, I, mean, I so Vancey Magic comes out before D&D does right like um uh, uh and to a lesser extent i think it's like weirdly underselling it just because it's like the th the thing that's influenced by jack vance is vancey and magic and that's just the way that the, like people don't know that it's vancey and magic outside of people only know what vancey magic is because that's the way that D, D does magic is the way i would say it uh oh wow so he didn't actually write any any D, &D books it looks like um 
But yeah, so Jack Vance basically he writes he writes specifically around um, uh, spells do specific things, right? And the things that they do are quantifiable and containable and make you know explicit explicit sort of like sense. I think that's the is that the what's the best definition of Vancean magic you can give? Uh, so so the the important like you said like spells do very specific things. And the second part is that you memorize this, like like the, the kind of like fantasy of it is you study the spell, you memorize it, and you store it in your mind kind of temporarily. And when it casts, it leaves your mind, so you are unable to cast it again, right? Like these, oh sure yeah yeah like that like you know again the, like the way this is expressed in game terms is like spell slots and casting spells. And what the fantasy is supposed to be, which I think a lot of people don't kind of follow, is that the wizard is supposed to be like studying his tome. And he memorizes how to do the spell, but that's only a temporary construct, right? It's like cramming before a test, essentially, right? And as soon as um, the test is over, as soon as you cast a spell, you can't remember it anymore. Except it's like less, it's like less uh, fluid than that. It is like literally, you know, the spell is a, you know, a, a unit that gets stored in your brain. And the nature of the magic is such that it leaves your head and you can't remember it. Like... It's not like a very advanced wizard would be able to remember, like, the spell anyway after it leaves his head. It's just kind of like the way that magic works, right? Yeah. Um, see, um, the spells are very quantized is maybe the term I want to use, right? Yeah, and so he goes on to say that Vance hasn't been a particularly popular fantasy author for several generations now, and many popular fantasy wizards don't have massively diverse bags of tricks and fire and forget spells. They often have a smaller bag of focused abilities that they get increasingly competent with, with maybe some expansions into specific new themes and abilities as they grow in power. The Pathfinder 2e Kineticist is an example of how limiting the theme and degree of a customization of a character can lead to an overall more satisfying and accessible play experience, right? This is, you narrow, you know, you kind of narrow your scope um, to really drill down into kind of a, a gameplay theme, and that's something that really connects with people, which I do think is very true, right? This is why I think paladins are, people, I don't know that this is real, but I think people connect to the fantasy of a paladin more than they connect to the fantasy of, like, a warrior, right? Um... A paladin tends to carry a lot of weight on its own, a kind of kind of class fantasy weight on its own, whereas a warrior or a fighter in D&D terms um, tends to be very much a cipher, right? You can yeah. make a fighter into a million different things, right? It doesn't really have that sort of baggage, but a paladin is a very specific thing. And sure, you can have different oaths, right? Um, or in Pathfinder 2e, you're technically champions. Paladins are the lawful good version of it, right? Or whatever. I mean, I guess they're getting rid of alignments, but, um, uh, you know, you could theoretically have like evil paladins. These are hell knights and stuff like that. Um, or, hell, uh, hell knights, I, it's, it's, um, it's anti-paladins. Hell knights are lawful, like are restrained on the lawful axis, but they are not specifically evil. They can be neutral. What are anti-paladins? Anti anti that, that, so actually an anti-paladin is chaotic evil. That is like the traditional oh, okay. name for it. Um, oh, right. I made it. I made a custom class for that. I made uh, or not custom class. I think it was an archetype. Um, yeah, there's, there's, I made the Reaver archetype, which is the chaotic evil paladin who smites lawful. I thought I thought uh, I I could be wrong. What the, the champions all have these names, right? Like champion yeah. PF2. Let me see if I can find it. Because um, they they had names for like the all like you know the different 
Yeah, another example of this might be Cleric, right? Cleric, you know, borrows a lot of its design and feel from sort of the flavor of whatever god, you right. know, like your 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 kind of um um your actually maybe the best example of this is actually kind of like monk. Monk is maybe the most sort of narrow. You kind of can't do anything with a monk except for like um I think that's I I think that uh I think Paladin might actually be it. Um, or yeah. maybe, maybe Druid. Um, because, like, I think... See, Druid, well, okay. It's part of this, I think, is that there's just a variety of stuff you can do, right? Yeah. With with Fighter, you can be a tank. You can go in with a greatsword and beat stick guys. You can be dual-wielding, you know, you like pirate kind of stuff. You can be an archer, right? A million different things. With a Druid, you can be a shape-changer. You can turn into a bear. You can be, like, a, a big storm. Beefcake. A storm, like, a storm caster, essentially. Yeah, right? you can be, like, a blaster calling lightning. You can be, like, a healer or something like that. Um, you know, you can um, uh, with a with a monk. I feel like the maybe you could be like a t tank or something like that. But it's like you're very melee. You're in melee. You're you're beating well, guys up. You have your key and stuff like that. I was gonna say you, you can be kind of like a quasi spellcaster, right? That use it's basically you're like an Eastern themed, you know, a karate magician, right? And you can you place <laughs> yeah. the, you can place the emphasis on the karate or on the magician. Right, so yeah. I will agree it's very limited. <laughs> can, that's a really good way to frame it. Yeah, you can place the uh, the emphasis on the karate or the magician. Fuck yeah. Um, um, uh, I think I think Paladin just might even be a little bit more narrow than that, right? Like you are a champion of like goodness. Paladin specifically, like champion. Champion is an attempt to broaden this, right? Um, but I think that um, I, th I think the other thing too is that like because monk is the way to fight. Um, unarmed, and that is like a specific fantasy for a lot of people. There, there is naturally pressure, and I think developer supported ways and like other supported ways to make it less karate magician and more like, you know, be the way to fight. Like, if you have a concept that's that's unarmed, you're probably playing monk, and so like the pressure for because that has to hold all of that weight, you get like avenues to peel off off of the karate magician kind of thing. That come usually come in a little bit later, which is maybe why I'm resisting it a little bit. But I, th I think you're largely correct that like the monk has. Yeah, and I I think people react strongly to strong class fantasies, right? Because my 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 overall point is people pre tend to prefer playing paladins than playing fighters in my in my experience, right? When I think of my friends, I which is funny because I'm kind of the opposite. In order for somebody to play a fighter, they typically are bringing a lot of themselves to the table. I like fighters, right? Yeah. They're bringing a lot of them to themselves to the table. They're bringing a whole kind of thing to slot on top of kind of um, the, the game's fantasy. But I think there are a lot of people who want the game to give them the fantasy, right? right. Um, and who kind of show up and go, oh, what's interesting? And the thing that's interesting is Paladin. Paladin is what grabs people because it has such a strong core fantasy to, its, it like, to itself. That is, uh, I feel like that is sort of what he's, he's getting at a little bit here. Because a wizard can do so much and kind of be so much, I actually do sort of understand why an arcanist in you know ends up kind of like being weirdly more popular or even sorcerer right the, the reason sorcerer was originally introduced because it was not included in dnd 3.0 um was because they felt like wizard was not uh connecting with people and they wanted to give people another way to um interface with magic systems uh that wasn't 
dealing with spell books and, and stuff like that, which I thought was really interesting. Um, that's like super old lore, though. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's weird. <laughs> 2000. I, I actually think you're pointing to something interesting because, like, Wizard does have, like, a specific fantasy that's, like, aligned with it. It just, like, doesn't manifest quite properly in the way that, like, I think, I think actually, like, cantrips as, like, basic units of attack have got a good way of addressing that. I think for, like, balance reasons, maybe it's not the greatest thing, but that's, that's, that's neither here nor there. But, like, like, when I think wizard, right, like, the thing I think of is, like, Merlin from the Sword in the Stone animated film, yep. right? Like, um, and, you know, it's somebody who studies, it's somebody who is old, right, typically, doesn't have to be, right, but, like, learns out of books, right? Like, this is, like, this is even Harry Potter, right? Like, Harry Potter, like, learns specific spells out of books, he doesn't remember, but, like, the thing that doesn't connect is you don't get that kind of fancy and fire and forget spells, right? It's, like, a spell is a thing you learn, and then you have, like, maybe you need to practice it and get mastery over it to not, to make it not um, falter, but, like, you, like, the essence of being a wizard is kind of, like, doing, like, doing this and being able to, being able to be reactive about it, right? Which is not a thing that's, like, supported super well by the wizard fantasy right like like weirdly i think that like maybe the 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 this like the part of part of the disconnect is like you want to be able to like play like a kineticist that studies out of a book even though that doesn't really make sense for like from like a mechanics perspective right like that's like and because like the game term doesn't like has like has a thing associated with it it kind of like blocks us off right like there is nothing that says that I couldn't play an arcanist, not an arcanist, uh, a kineticist that like studies out of books, right? Like, you know, has a very high arcana score in PF2E lingo, right? Um, studied at the Magical Academy and like slings these things around and the way you flavor it is spells, but because he's not called a wizard, it's never gonna feel quite right, right? Like this is like the old joke about the orc wizard like casts punch and he just like punches you in the face, right? Like you can call it a wizard, but it's, is he really a wizard? Right, like that that kind of thing. Um, yeah, now we're getting into like do words mean things? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. I think actually, you know it's sort of like my history things. <laughs> that has a lot to do with it, right? Um I think something that is co that's complicated that people don't necessarily understand is that words have are not just definitions, they're also connotations, right? Like the way that the human brain conceives of words is in both the uh, the explicit thing that you've been taught that's in a dictionary, but also in the complex web of things that connects to all the other things in the, you know, unlimited map of your brain's ability to comprehend language, right? This is why it's kind of ridiculous. It's, it's paradoxically ridiculous, but also makes a ton of sense when that one Supreme Court justice said, I just know it when I see it. That's true. That is actually how words work. That's how words work all the time, yeah. right? Um, because so much of it is not just on definition, but also connotation, right? And I think the connotation of the word wizard is the, all of this extra stuff that we're talking about, right? right? Big, long, flowing beard, the floppy hat, right? You know, like... Um, uh, you know, uh, intellect based, all that, all of those things are connotations of the word wizard, right? That are kind of, uh, that are kind of like co complicated and tougher to sort of, you know, like tougher to sort of parse. But the feeling, and I think this is where the class fantasy of wizard does work, the feeling of having the right spell for the job is amazing. I don't know that I can ever, you know, like, there are 
few times I think that uh, a, like a a tabletop game pops off in such a way as when a wizard has a way to solve an incredibly complex problem in a Gordian knot way because he has some weird fucking spell prepared that just deals with it, right? I can't even think of a good example off the top of my head. Uh, maybe the thing I was describing a couple of weeks ago, technically I was playing a warlock, not a wizard, but it was sort of this effect where I cast gaseous form on a person who was wearing a cursed item and the cursed item fell you know, was disincluded from the gaseous form, the cursed item fell to the ground, right? They're no longer cursed. I got them to, to put down the item by tricking them and using this spell in a clever way, right? Like, I feel like that's the, the that's a lot of the class fantasy of like a wizard, right? Um, or really any, or really any sort of spellcaster kind of, kind of like feels this way, but just having the right spell for the job is sort of the thing. Um, and I think un, maybe not undo, but extra emphasis gets put on, put on that for wizards because their spell slots are prepared and their utility is so insanely varied. Yeah. And I, I think part of it is like, I think part of the issue is like essentially power game versus um, kind of like verisimilitude is what I'm going to say. Right? Like the reason, like the way, the reason that Merlin works Right, as or like that kind of Merlin archetype works in kind of like the core fantasy, is that like it's like, you know, it's like I need to deal with this specific situation, right? It's like, oh, I know a spell for this, right? And he goes and he ruffles through his things, right? And like maybe he has to go into his tower and like, you know, search through his books and he find, found it and like he goes, you know, walks back and like, you know, figures the problem out, right? The problem is, is that, like, turning that into a game system means that, like, the player will be like, it's in my spellbook, I get to cast a spell, right? Like, um, and so, like, the fantasy that you want is, like, you know, you know, the wizard has this power available to him, but he has to go seek it out at, like, you know, because, like, you know, he won't have, like, say, you know, uh, knock, right, at his fingertips, right? Um, but, you know, he... Definitely learned it back in Wizard College, right? And he has it written down somewhere, but he doesn't necessarily have it on him. Um, because, like, as a person, right? Like, you know, I've got, like, I have a a miter saw in my garage, right? I don't carry my fucking miter saw with me everywhere. But I can, cut, like, if I need to go cut a piece of wood, I go back to my house and I use the, and I use the miter saw, right? The problem is, is that, like, a gamer will, like, strap the miter saw to his back because it's going to be useful at some point. And he doesn't have to actually be the weirdo fighter walking around town with a miter saw strapped to his back, right? Like, the, the you know, like, that. that's, like, that's where, like, the fantasy and the practical, like, the, the fantasy and the, and the game kind of, like, uh, hit a, hit, hit a, hit a, uh, a breaking point, essentially. Right, like, because I, I, like, the way this would resolve itself in, like, a story that you would write about this, right, to continue the matter, is, is, like, you know, you know, I don't have a miter saw on me because it would be weird for me to be carrying my miter saw around me with all the time just in case I need it, right? But the power gamer would be like, well, it doesn't cost me any, it doesn't cost me anything in terms of either narrative or um, mechanics for me to have it on me if I can, like, hit the weight requirement, right? Um, uh, like, the way that you would maybe combat this as a GM is be like, you know, 
everybody's looking at you weird because you have a fucking miter saw strapped to your back, right? No one wants to talk to the weirdo with the miter saw strapped to his back. But that's like a very soft skills thing that doesn't like systematize well, right? And I think that's that that's part of the problem. Why, to, to address the later part of this post, which is like why you can't bring wizard into necessarily into line with like what the fantasy of a wizard is typically um does that make sense at all so it does and there's an interesting other piece of this which i do think is neat which is that i think that system exists for gamers they just don't ever use it which is scribing scrolls right yeah i think the thing that gamers are supposed to do is uh, i'm sorry to back this up I think if I'm a designer on D&D 3.5, right, the, 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 the granddaddy of all this stuff, right, I think that's the reason that Scribe Scroll exists, right, and scrolls in general sort of exist, right? If I'm a wizard and I'm at the end of my day and I just, like, want to do, you know, like, I want to find some of these utility spells that I'm using really rarely, I want to find that miter saw and put it in my, in, in my garage. I don't want to prepare it every day. I'm not going to prepare knock every day, right? But I might, while I'm sitting in camp, Scribe a scroll of knock, right? And use my scroll of knock in order to get into this door that is, the, or chest or whatever, you know, like whatever the, whatever the thing is. And there's a million different ways you can do that. And I think Baldur's Gate is actually probably the best I've ever seen at actually, you know, like fulfilling that kind of fantasy of giving you a bazillion scrolls. And when you're in the moment, you're just like, oh my God, I have a scroll of Featherfall. Let, right. Let's Featherfall down, right? Like that kind of thing. The complicated thing is that scrolls take experience points to scribe. I don't but think like, that's it, true in PF2E anymore, but but yes, that, that was the I'm problem. Sure, I, yeah, I'm sure it's absolutely not. But I think this is the thing. I think this is the thing that keeps people from scribing scrolls, right? Which is they were using this esoteric crafting rules around spending experience. And I feel like gamers have the instinct that anything that that levels are power... Anything that would ever cost experience is incorrect, right? Even if you and I would understand the value proposition, it probably not makes sense, right? The most diehard min-max gamers out there probably, you know, could could say, "Oh, it is better to ha it is better to spend a tiny bit of experience, right, on scribing a couple of scrolls in your downtime than, you know." have the extra 300 experience even if it means the rest of your party levels up for a session and I, it takes I, you a little time to catch I up i actually think that's right? the bigger problem i don't think the problem is necessarily the spending the experience i think the problem is is the idea that you will be behind your friends in the level progression well, that's exactly what i'm saying that's exactly what i'm saying i think this is the thing that keeps people from strapping the miter saw to their back i think it's that there's it's the same sort of visceral sort of um like the collective unconscious or unconscious of uh, like an adventuring party that it keeps it keeps you from doing that. Like b besides the fact that the systems themselves are impossible to parse, right? I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. Like old crafting systems. Oh yeah. I played so much D and D three five, and I crafted in D and D three five, right? Uh, but the systems for doing so is just like basically incomprehensible or whatever so there's a certain level of just it's a really complicated they, system nobody they, wants they to are, delve into it they are simultaneously incredibly hard to parse and also incredibly boring right like there's, yeah. there's, there's like nothing fun about crafting in these games which is you know a design decision i'm not saying that's invalid but it's like you know you roll some dice and you make the checker and you don't 
right? Like in yep. all situations, it's streamlined in PF2E, but that's basically what it is, right? Like, um, and uh, and I think that I think that uh, it is sort of the failure of that system that has driven players away. I would say from Vancian from Vancian Magic. I think I imagine a version of things. Well, let's say three five had a really intuitive system for scribing scrolls. Let's just say. At the end of a day, a wizard can take his unused spell slots and scribe a certain number of scrolls. Let's say we're ba we balance this in some magical way because I can't think of how that would be balanced. Yes. It would be so broken if I if you know on its face. Um, and uh, you know you you just tuck those scrolls away, keep them in the backpack for later, kind of thing, and, and like move on with your with your like adventuring day. Um, I think that is probably a system where. We don't see a a sort of turn away from Vantine Magic. We see it turn towards it over time. And D&D &D 5e inherits some version of this system that makes more sense. Instead, instead, I think the opposite has happened, which is that this sort of extra piece has kind of atrophied because nobody wants to deal with scribing scrolls and this kind of stuff. Scrolls are really just loot. You know, there's a system for creating them, I guess, maybe, who cares, kind of thing. No one is ever going to get involved in that sort of thing. Um, and we all... And we all sort of move on. Yeah, I, so it's it's interesting because like I'm, I think part of the problem here too is that like there are variables that you can't hold consistent across different types of games, right? Like I think on top of the experience thing, even like the gold thing, there is I think a relatively hard bias against buying consumables, right? Like maybe health potions if you absolutely have to. Um, there's also um, a but like you can't expect you can't know like in terms of like designing the system you can't know how much time any given party is going to have right like you know um if i'm playing a game where it's like you know you do some stuff and there's like downtime in between like you know your your sense of adventures right like does does you know melvin the wizard just like spend three weeks just like constantly scribing scrolls is that going to cause a problem right like a, a balance problem like like even if like you know you abstract way out the gold problem right like and maybe the answer there is that like you can't actually hand away away the gold problem and that if you keep the gold relatively consistent um and you don't let him like work during that time like it'll balance itself out in the end but um i think i think these are these are part of the problems like making that system work right like you can't if you were playing like a pure dungeon crawl right you can't scribe scrolls probably during that that, that process and is I guess maybe the answer is just like bouncing around that, but like um, also maybe encouraging players to like do things with their downtime, right? Which is, is I think it's like a GMing skill thing, right? It's like. Yeah, there's a piece of this in uh, Michael Sayers' second thread that I thought was pretty interesting where he talks about kind of like the adventuring day um, and how they design. Um, uh, the their their idea for an adventuring day is uh three encounters he says three encounters is basically the assumed baseline which is why three is the default number of spells per level that core casters cap out at uh you're generally assumed to be having about three encounters per day and using one top rank slot per encounter supplemented by some combination of care trips focus spells you know consumables limited use consumables that kind of that kind of thing um which is pretty interesting to me like it's i i had this thing where i was eventually when it came to Hell's Rebels, 
because we were playing in for three hours in on a weeknight, I felt like we could only do one combat, right? Like one encounter, right? So I was sort of designing every encounter to go balls to the wall with you guys, right? Um, because generally on the next, by the next session, I would say you guys long rested, right? Um, is three, is that, is that three, you know, encounters so per day, like a baseline you, you that go, you agree with? If you go a couple um, posts down, Mark Seifter uh, chimes in. Um, and he gives a little bit more flavor there. It's not three encounters per day total, but it's balanced around the definitions of moderate, severe, and extreme encounters found in the CRB. Um, it's unlikely for an average group to take many more than three moderate plus encounters in a day. Um, so, I so I mean the the the, the, the thing the, the problem that we're talking about here is is like you know the standard kind of like four hour adventuring day problem, right? Um, and uh, I, I kind of get that, and I think it makes sense, right? Like, you can, like, push around the edges of that. Um, and I think I think the solution... The solution there has to be, like, you know, Dungeon Master enforced for similitude, right? Like, if, like you, know, you know you say you don't long rest a lot in Baldur's Gate 3 because it feels bad, right? Like, yeah. that's basically what you have to do, I think, at the tabletop, right? Like, it's like make it feel weird to like you know go to the dungeon and come back and take a nap right like you know um because you like you, you need to like build enough of like a real world in order for that to work and i, I think i think that's uh, funnily enough i really enough i think that's like just the the solution right is is that <laughs> yeah, yeah that's fair when we were doing dungeons, uh, even in Hell's Rebels, we did those on Saturdays where they could go much, much longer. And that's a bazillion encounters, right? A dungeon yeah. is like 10 encounters. Um, but I also think that uh, Pathfinder adventure paths always have a contingency, which is that like if, a pl if the players start a dungeon and then long rest in the middle of the dungeon bad stuff happens typically monsters come back and they have to do you have to redo some encounters um or future encounters that they didn't get to get more difficult right so if they're if they enter the dungeon and they're gonna go fight the bad guy but then they leave and rest and come back to finish the dungeon the bad guy has now buffed himself a whole bunch and he's much harder to deal with like that kind of thing which i also quite like that system right that's that's a lot of how i like to think about um uh, you know, like adventuring and dungeons and all of that sort of, and all that sort of thing. I also think that it's a different sort of skill set, right? Um, one of the things that I like about doing a dungeon is the is the encounter to encounter. I might need this later calculus. I think right. that's really fun, and it's one of the places where D and D system kind of comes alive. Um, when you're doing sort of one encounter days, which is sort of the, the other piece of that Hell's Rebel thing I was talking about. Basically, everybody just kind of came out the gate blasting. It's a little of like in World of Warcraft when you're when you lust on pull. Yeah. And just you just absolutely blow up these boss fights, right? You know, you kind of have to. That's a that's a thing that you have to like balance around and deal with, and all of that other kind of um, you know all, all of that other kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, um, you had this thing about cantrips that I wanted to follow up on, but if you can finish your thought. No, no, go, go, go for it. Uh, you had this thing around cantrips. What, what, what is your what is your deal with cantrips? Um, just that like I am not sure. Like, the part of maybe the the fundamental fantasy around right, like what a wizard should be, is like a thing that like you know grows in power over time, and also like you know has like high moment high highs but low lows right like kind of like this typical three five wizard right like had like one or two you know kind of like well-timed game changer spells right early sure. on 
and then was stuck the rest of the day plinking away with a crossbow, essentially, right? Like you know, or maybe mixing it up with a quarterstaff if you were really da- if you were really daring. Uh, and basically, like cantrips get rid of all of that, which I think is good on the one hand, but like also kind of like means that you kind of have to shave some of the power off of the off of the spells on the other, because um, essentially you are you are a force to be reckoned with. At, uh, at at all times, right? Like you have you have a moderate damage dealing ability, um, which, okay. Which which is I think like this is kind of like the the very old discussion of um, what is it uh, linear fighters, quadratic wizards, quadratic casters, which is like an old thing, which is like back in three five, the like a basically like wizard and fighter kind of like cross at power levels around level seven and then past like before that fighters are more powerful and past that wizards are more powerful there's a couple mitigating factors here right like wizards in like ad and d had like like as a matter of progression got like fortresses and like you know soldiers to command um uh because that was still like basically when it was still like primarily an inheritor out of war games um and the other side and the other side of this too is like you know like you know Maybe that was, uh, and this is the thing I'm highlighting, right? Is that like maybe it's okay for that to be true because the wizards kind of have to struggle through those early levels where they're not great, right? And like the spells do very cool, very powerful things, um, um, but as a, as a trade off on your like nor- on like most turns, you're kind of like not being the most effective. So um, I don't have a hard hard op- opinion on that, but like it's just the thing I think about sometimes. I don't know where I come down on it. That's actually pretty interesting. I think part of it is that cantrips aren't built to have most cantrips don't have flat bonuses, right? They're all just dice, basically. I guess like but they warlocks it can right. So yeah, but so what I mean is they scale at the same rate that like a fighter would get extra in attacks, but an extra attack is way more valuable to a fighter than an extra D eight on Ray of Frost is to a wizard. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, maybe. If I'm a fighter yeah. with a great sword doing getting to attack twice for 2d6 damage plus my strength mod and all this other sort of stuff you know what i mean like i think that's just gonna like put out way more damage than my ray of frost so i definitely think i definitely think the low lows are there and the high highs are there but to me the, the it's interesting because whenever i think of the difference between fighters and wizards my thing with fighters and wizards is that wizards have complex targeting fighters have much simple target much simpler targeting right generally a fighter is only ever going after ac right uh, in terms of defenses right right right, right. um it, a, a fighter is very rarely dealing with saving throws it's very rarely dealing with you know kind of extraneous sort of systems for that but what a wizard has access to and this is the thing that makes them so powerful in my opinion um when it comes to dealing you know stuff to opponents is that a wizard can look at a a creature and go i bet that thing has a dog shit dexterity save i'm going to cast lightning bolt and blow it you know blow it up right or it'll look at a group and say oh that thing that probably has a really good dexterity save i'm going to cast hold person right or something like that right um in order to in order to like lock it down and because it can always oh and this is part of what i think he's talking about you know um michael sire is talking about or sayer is talking about when he's talking about power um with min maxers with wizards is their ability to specifically target the weakest defenses of individual opponents on any individual day right it is incorrect for a wizard to prepare four fireballs in their um 
uh, in their third level spell slot because really what they want to do is they want to prepare fireball, you know, for things that are going to be weak to dex. They want to prepare, I don't know, whatever, like vampiric I'm, touch or something. You know, just like a bunch of different things. Fi fireball for things in a, in a radius, lightning bolt for things in a line, and like... Yeah, know, exactly, right, you know. Um, and, and a million other things, because it's not just yeah. that. Sometimes it's touch AC, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there are some creatures that have a really low touch AC, some creatures that have a much higher touch AC. Is touch AC um, a thing in 5e? Because it hasn't been a thing in Pathfinder 2e. Yeah, that's true. I'm thinking in terms of Pathfinder 1E, but... 1E and 3.5. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I guess it's not... I don't, is it a thing in 5E? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Um, yeah. But yes, um, but yeah, yeah, you know. But, and, 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 and so, anyway, the a fighter is always going against AC, basically, right? Um, the way a fighter deals damage is they go in and they, they you know, do AC, basically. Um, uh, and so... the. That's that's what I feel like was um, I don't know, like underwriting some of underwriting some of that sort of stuff, and I definitely do feel that in Baldur's Gate in a lot of ways uh, because I feel like when my party is we've done this like part of my long resting thing is I'm a rogue right um, we carry Carlac a lot of the time we carry Late Cell a lot of the time and it's just like they're they're just good for they can just do this forever right because they're just both mostly built on the engine of just raw attacks get in range get to land your attacks go nuts right that's me right i just i want to if i can hit my sneak attack every turn i'm doing max damage basically right it's not like i need a lot of short rest or long rest or you know per day stuff to in order to make that work but in order for gale to be really worth it in my party he's got to be casting some you know buku spells right um and i feel like that's kind of what is yeah i don't know like underwriting all that yeah, no, I think that that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, what do you think Warlocks come down? I, me I mentioned Warlocks. Now I'm interested in your opinion just as a 5e player who has played Warlocks. Like, where do you think they come down in all this? Um, so War Warlocks have a very strong class fantasy, right? Like, um, so much so that, in fact, that, like, I think, like, most of, like, the packs just kind of, like, like the Fae Pact and, like, the Celestial Pact feel kind of weird. I think it's, like, a, from, like, a class fantasy perspe perspective. Um, like, you have to take the Infernal Pact? Not have to, just, like, you know, like, I think Infernal, I think Old One works, right? Like, I, I think... Oh, sure. Faye makes sense, it just, like, doesn't... Like, if it, it feels like what Warlock should be is, you know, like, Pact-bound caster, and Warlock is the Infernal one, right? And, like, you know, like, you know, uh... Fey bound is you know like, like there's not yeah like a, there is a subclass there's the divine subclass for it right which is sort of like the oracle was in Pathfinder but they don't call it that it's like celestial it's like celestial pa passive the celestial and it makes you yeah it makes you a healer right it gives you a bunch of healing shit um, yeah. which I thought was a really interesting design you know in in five e but it's very weird to call that a warlock <laughs> yeah yeah. Call, yeah, you, you might call that, like, an anointed one, right? Like, or something like that, right? Like, you know, like, you, yeah. you want those, like, champion names for the non, you know, infernal uh, warlock, right? Like, um, uh, but um, beyond that, like, I think they, they kind of feel like, they feel, it's, I do not play it the way it's supposed to be played. Like, I don't use Eldritch Blast. I don't even know Eldritch Blast. Um, but it's a Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I, because I'm, I, I. I like to play a lot of kind of like a combination um, fighter casters, so I like hit things with my hammer. Um, I'm a dwarf, uh, and so I have provisions. But you have like packed to the blade or whatever, so you no, can... actually, because yeah. we didn't need that. I've packed with the tome. I just hit things with my hammer anyway, and I probably shouldn't. Um. <laughs> 
just like intentionally making it as hard as you possibly well, can. So, so to be fair, I end up casting spells, and I also like I hit with um, Green Flame Blade, which is um, uh, which is like a it's like a cantrip that attaches. It's like essentially kind of like doing elect uh, shocking grasp in BG three. Okay. Um, so it's just kind of like I just mix it up a little bit more. Um, even though I'm like more statted out to be like a pure caster, I, I would do probably do slightly better if I was using Eldritch Blast, but you know, um, uh, I just like this better thematically. Yeah, because in a certain sense, I think I think Warlock has a really interesting sort of spellcaster design because you get extremely limited spells, right? You get a spell known list, um, and then um, uh, you get a certain number of spells, uh, but the spells are per rest, per right? short, per rest. short rest, yeah. Um, which is really interesting. And then on top of that, um, you, you get spells per short rest and then, um, uh, and your spells are always at the highest level possible, right? Yes. You, you get, um, so you get two, two, for most of the game, you get two spells for short rest and then eventually you get three. Um, and then you also get like, that's up to fifth. That's not highest level possible. It's up to, it's highest level you can cast up to fifth because after okay. fifth, you get, you basically get like one a day. Spells in each of the in each in like the um, oh for six seven, seven eight, eight nine yeah yeah okay um, that that tracks because that's also like the other classes you can't interact like for instance there's like the arcane points or whatever that you get as a wizard there's also the nature points you get as a as a druid where you can refresh your own spell slots or whatever um, and like you could refresh five level one spell slots if you wanted or the kind of thing but you can't refresh a level six spell slot once you cast your level six spell you're done so yeah that makes sense yeah no the, the, yeah that that, that that tracks to me yeah yeah that's interesting I feel like warlocks are also yeah I I definitely think warlocks have a really strong class fantasy I think every d d 5e game I've ever heard about or played in has included a warlock because people just like love it so much well I'm so it's also got a lot of like it comes with a built-in role-playing hook, right? Like, yeah. Which is, like, a thing that, like, even the other ones with super hard cl- hardcore class fantasies don't necessarily have a built-in role-playing hook, right? Like, yeah. Like, at some point, it would be, at some point, your warlock will deal with his pact, right? Like, um, and it will be, like, some aspect of the story, right? Like, it has to be, right? Like, um, I mean, it Yeah, it's kind of like the obligations from Star Wars. What a great system that yeah. was. Yeah, yes. No, you're right. It, it is a built-in obligation, right? Like, um... And you, like, you know, you can like, you can build around these things. Like, you can write them into your character's backstory or develop them over the course of play. But like, nothing is quite as built in as the warlock. Um, plus, it's also like the blaster class, right? Like, yeah. Um, if you want, if being you, able to eldritch blast, just yeah. zam zam every turn. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is missing some of like kind of like the elementalist vibe that like, as I think another part of the core that kind of like core magic user blaster fantasy. But um, it's close enough, right, for most people. Um, and you can like do all sorts of weird shit with your Eldritch Blast um, if you want to. Um, that actually, thinking about it, like the Warlock might actually come closest to kind of hitting what you want from like that wizard fantasy. Now that I think about it, right? Because you can kind of like do wizard shit, but you know you could do blasty shit most of the time, and every once in a while you get to do like your special thing, right? Um, which. Uh, which I think makes sense, um, but it's called Warlock, and it comes with baggage, so you know, a little bit different. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, we're just about in an hour. 
Uh, so, uh, do you have anything else you want to talk about with this? You know, no, nah, I'm good. Do you have any more that you want to do? Not, not on, not on this wizard stuff. Okay. How was uh, your week? Um, what did I do this week? I most I played a lot of Baldur's Gate. To be honest, we have been in that clipping things off period of Baldur's Gate, uh, and it's been going pretty good. You know, we're just we're just getting rid of. Just getting rid of quests from the quest inventory, uh, the, the quest log. Um, and there's some, like, there's some great stuff in this back half that we're, that we've been, like, plugging away at. Um, but, um, uh, there's also some stuff that's, like, a fucking slog. There is one, like, collectathon quest in the third act of Baldur's Gate that is intensely frustrating. <laughs> I have just hit Act 3 in Baldur's Gate. Um, nice. Uh, and I promptly was like, I need to take a break from this. It's uh, because, like, there's so much dumb stuff to do, right? Like, so many, like, it's like, it's like you, beat, you beat it, right? Yeah, yay. And then you need to go, like, you know, like, talk to 72 people and, like, you know, walk somewhere. And then, like, you know, and then the, the intercalary thing happens, uh, which, spoiler warning for Baldur's Gate, three um you get attacked by githyanki and oh my god that happened wait i'm sorry wait in 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 like the astral plane is what i'm talking about you, you oh right that's also happened did you did you get Gith attacked by the githyanki at the bridge the bridge which bridge okay <laughs> i don't know maybe maybe this is something that i unlocked that you didn't necessarily unlock there's um when you're going to Baldur's Gate, there's like a bridge or whatever. I, I, so I have uh, not gotten to Baldur's Gate yet. I am in like Rivington. Or oh, whatever. okay. But so you didn't do the crash, right? No, I didn't. You skipped the crash, right? Okay, okay. This is why. There is a thing at the end of the crash where you get like marked by like the Githyanki where they want to kill you guys, right? Um, they know you have this mind flare parasite trying to kill you or whatever, so they're sending like goon squads after you essentially. Um, and one of those goon squads attacks on this bridge. There's a you are walking uh, and there's a bridge over top of you, um, and under the bridge. Uh, is the thing to Baldur's Gate. So right as you're going to go click the thing to go to Baldur's Gate, you get attacked by a bunch of Githyanki, <laughs> which is pretty funny, uh, especially because when we originally triggered that, it was because I think Rachel had like an earth elemental out. We'd used this earth elemental for like all of this whole dungeon. Um, or no, actually, this is even before then. We had been just snooping around that area, and I accidentally got onto the bridge while hiding, and I spawned the Githyanki, but they were all looking away from me, so I just backed up slowly. <laughs> and then we later came back and, you know, did a whole thing. We ambushed them, that kind of thing, but it's very funny. But, yeah, the Astral Githyanki is also a thing. Yeah, no, that was, like, that was, like, one of those times where it's, like, am I supposed to be, like... This guy is clearly torturing this Githyanki, right? Like the the prince, which you know has like bigger implications. Like, should I say like I said like no to him the first time, and then like the fight was just like I was just like so unprepared for the fight that like, um, uh, uh that like it it killed me. And I just, I was like I can't I don't care. I'm going to Google this. It's like if you say no and you kill him, you will lose the game. Right. Yeah, so. that is uh, that is what we did. We said no both times, and we did 
kill him. We actually put all of our all of our stuff. We were just like, I bet if we kill him, we just get out of the fight. And then he goes, Nope, you still got to do the fight. And now he's at one HP. It's just like, fuck, god damn it. <laughs> yeah, no, it was uh, that was kind of a, a slog. Um, just kind of like because I was like, uh, like I was like, oh, I'll get to Act Three and then I'll stop for the night. And it's just like I have to deal with whatever the fuck this is, right? Like. Um, and uh, I didn't think it was particularly good. So, like, I, 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 like, just kind of, like, I didn't call that specific twist, but I'm like, there's a reason why he keeps telling you to, like, eat more parasites or whatever, right? Yeah, like, slurp up tadpoles, yep. Yeah. Like, no, I'm not going to fucking do that. So, like, you know, drop the other boot already, you fucking spaz, right? Like, Yeah complicated i don't know we'll see how how the game ends obviously we're barreling closer towards it i don't know maybe by the end of this week we'll clip it off uh the other thing that i did uh was starfields how much starfield did you end up playing i have not played since we last talked just okay i played a i have had the hardest time getting in starfield i talked about this on the cast i was just like man this like game is just not connecting for me or whatever there was some stuff i did one quest that was pretty fun um the first quest at the uc vanguard is really great. I won't spoil that. Um, but uh, it's lore. You know, like, I think part of what is getting me about Starfield is the lack of lore. Um, because it's a brand new world, like, universe or whatever, um, there's just, like, a lot of lore that it needs to introduce you to. Um, and I think it's doing a pretty bad job of introducing me to that lore. I'm thinking about, like, when I first played Mass Effect... Um, when you go to the Citadel Presidium, you do the introductory quest, you know... Which has a great hook, by the way. This There's this guy. He's a specter. You're learning to become a specter. He gets iced on his first fucking mission. And then you go to the Citadel and you're locked down in the Citadel. Um, and you have to go through this, like, talking, you know, do all this, like, talking and, you know, stuff. That, that was such an amazing thing in 2007, right? It was so cool. It was the greatest shit in the world, right? But I think the thing that really made that experience so transcendent and would later catapult sort of this Mass Effect property uh, as far as it ended up going um, or continues to go because I guess they're still working on another one um, was you could just sit down and talk to the computer about the lore of the world and it would just explain the lore of the world to you, right? It was like, yep, there was this war, the humanity, the first contact war. Eventually the humans, you know, made peace or whatever. Everybody decided it was a big misunderstanding you know these are the different races this is what their this is what their politics are like you know all of this other sort of stuff and it really just like submerged you in that in that sort of feeling um i think that skyrim did a pretty good job of that too um you know all the run up all the way doing all that white run stuff you know when you're going to white run and then the dragon attacks on and stuff he's like that stuff is all great you meet this jarl you learn that the jarl is being you know courted to there's a rebellion there's the stormcloaks and the imperials or whatever all this other sort of stuff right starfield it just like didn't it just like didn't capture me on any of those sorts of like levels um it is it did get me, though, just by this thing that only a Bethesda game could really could really do, which was when you're flying around star systems, I was getting scanned for contraband, okay? Like, you go to a, you go to New Atlantis, and they scan you for contraband. I was like, okay, that's interesting. Let's, 
let's see where this goes. What, what, like, what's next here, basically? Um, and then I found some contraband. I like did a, I, I teleported to a system. System had a space station. I went into the space station. I cleared it out. I found a bunch of contraband in the bottom. Oh, interesting. This is marked as contraband. And I was like, well, if I bring the contraband to a system and I get scanned, are they going to find it? And the answer is yeah. So I put the contraband in my ship. I flew to the system. They scanned me for contraband. They found the contraband. I safe scumped. I reloaded the quick save, basically. Um, I think I probably would have had to like pay a fine or something. I didn't even stick around. I just wanted to. I just wanted to see how the scans work. But I was like, okay, well, if there's scanning, there's gotta be smuggling, obviously. So I eventually found a quest that led me to the pirates of the Crimson Fleet, and I was like, oh. I bet the pirates have deal with this stuff, right? You do the pirate's quest. The pirate's quest is actually pretty cool and pretty fun. There's like a lot going on in that quest. And it has been the most engaging set of quests I've done so far. But when they show you their secret pirate space station, which is pretty quick to be fair. Um, when they show you their secret pirate space station, you go to their secret pirate space station and they have an unregistered ship technician. Okay, that's interesting. I wonder what's there. And then I look and I start getting into the shipbuilding mechanics and I'm like, oh, this is this is a whole thing. And she sells shielded cargo containers, which are cargo containers that will block scans, right? As well as um, scan jammers, right? Uh, which are just like little discs, and you can affix them anywhere on your ship that you kind of have open little nodes because the ship the shipbuilding is all about these little like docking nodes. Can you dock this onto this? Can you dock a weapon onto that like that slot? And I was like, oh okay, here we go. Now we're cooking with gas. And then I went and I did more shit, and I found a bunch more contraband. And I went and I put it where I found my first contraband. And I was like, okay, here's my fucking contraband stash. We're gonna be fucking. We're gonna smuggle. We're gonna be smugglers now. Um, and then I went and I upgraded my shit. I put on a bunch of scan jammers or whatever i went and i got my contraband i flew through one of the settled systems i got scanned i had a 66 percent chance of evading the scan and then oof, woof, pass the check hell yeah and i was like okay you got me starfield i'm fucking in it that was like seven hours <laughs> like that was just like my sunday was just figuring out how to smuggle this contraband that i had found in order to make a big ass payday which i did in fact make and which was in fact very cool um and so now i feel like i'm in it now i feel like star starfield has gotten me because it has it has uh uh, you know, it has hit me with this like fantasy of being an intergalactic smuggler. I am playing, funnily enough, did I tell you this? I'm playing Mateo Vasquez. Ah, you did not. <laughs> yeah, that is, you know, a lot of the time when I play like one of these RPGs, I'll like use like a character, like it'll be Gondor Tonric, something like that. Uh, but I decided, I was like, what's a good character for this? I was like, oh, Mateo, Mateo Vasquez. And then I learned that one of the main guys in Constellation is fucking named Mateo. And I was like, when has that ever happened? Like, when has that ever happened? <laughs> I, I went with like a, I, I went with like a very sci-fi name. My character is named Braxton Borealis. I spent. It's like, like uh, what was the what was the Jad Fandu? Yeah, Jad. What Fandu. a great Star Wars name! Yeah. <laughs> well, I spent a bunch of, I spent I spent time on my name just because like I like, um, I like I like when the names fit the characters. Like, I have a, a kobold swashbuckler who's like the son of like an osiren merchant in in a pf2 game um and he's like Genikin vaguely and his name is suleiman augustus pendraco the third and it's just kind of like <laughs> you know you want that kind of like flavor with like you know kind of like it's like oh he's kind of like you know a dick you know he's 
he's, he's a little bit full of himself because he like uses his full fucking name, right? Like, you know, it's, it's. No, I understand. This is like a definition connotation thing, right? Uh, like names have connotations. Uh, like if I told you, if I asked you to imagine a man named Walter, you probably have a certain subset of things in your brain, older, white, right? Probably, you know, like 50s or 60s, right? But if I were to ask you to imagine um, a woman, or maybe keep it a man. If I were to ask you to imagine a man named Ricky, you probably have a different, you know, like thing, trucker hat, you know, trailer trash, right? Like a bunch of, this is like connotations, stuff like that. And I feel like finding a good name with good connotations is like, is like real. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, it, you know, that, that, that's also like has a bunch of, funnily enough, my uncle is named Rick. Um, and so I don't have <laughs> a specific conversation, but like I'm thinking about it, right? Like, my father in law is named Rick, right? But there's a big difference between my father in law, who, who goes by Rick, and like, you know, my former co worker, who is Richard, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, there was between Bob and Robert, right? Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Bobby or Robert, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <sighs> but yeah, Mateo. Mateo is also who I am playing in my 5e sandbox swashbuckler. Not swashbuckler, but 5e sandbox uh, seafaring game. We're calling it the seafaring game. Rachel, Rachel, who's DMing this game, uh, insists that it is not a pirate game, even though we kept calling it the pirate game. She's like, you guys don't have to be pirates, which is good, because Mateo is not a pirate. Mateo... In, in like part of his like character fantasy is that he is a smuggler. Okay, he thinks of himself. He's he is better are, than are you a, trying, a mere pirate. Are you trying to bait me into replaying uh, fucking Ralph? <laughs> I, you, if you want to, the lore is sweet. The lore in Rachel's in Rachel's five E game is uh, is really sweet. There's um. Uh, you know, like there's like a big kingdom on the kind of the bottom of the map, and there's like a big arc archipelago, right? Uh, but in the north northeast edge of the map are is this place called the Wild Seas, okay? And the Wild Seas is where like all the Leviathan are, right? Um, and there's a specific for the race, or, or sorry, for the for the uh, campaign race called the Onean, who are fish people that live at like the bottom of the sea, but they are Leviathan hunting fish people, and they ride big, they ride big fish that are super fast right and that's how they like dodge their leviathans right and there are and leviathan hunting is a real profession you go out you kill yourself a leviathan you bring a bunch of stuff back right like i one of the questions i asked when we were doing this uh when we were doing like the session zero for this i was like what's the most famous ship of all time or something like that and she was like oh well there was one you know there's one famous pirate ship which um covered its hull in certain sea serpent scales so that it would deflect cannon fire right like that kind of thing and i was just like oh yes this is so this is so great and so perfect but yeah mateo is the son of a pirate king um but he he oh my god orion please stop uh he's the son of a pirate king but he thinks pirates are are brutes right they are they are uncultured right the true way to be, a, be to be a criminal is to have finesse okay and precision and panache <laughs> so he is a mastermind uh he's gonna be a mastermind rogue and i'm very excited to get up to shenanigans very cool that is that is pretty cool <laughs> yeah the characters for this game are all pretty sweet uh warren is going to be playing i think a path of the deeps barbarian which i never heard of but it's from like the league of legends mm. you know supplement that they made um and um 
uh, which I was describing, I think, to yeah, you yeah. maybe on the cast a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, and then uh, there's also a like a, a warlock, like unearthed arcana, like warlocked pack called Pact of the Kraken, um, where you get your, you know, you, you, you essentially like make a pact with like a super powerful sea beast, right? Like Cthulhu or whatever. Uh, and my friend Mart is playing a Pact of the Kraken Warlock. Interesting. Uh, who is, yeah. Okay, I was going to say, like, the like the, the old one, like, there's a Chthonic, um Pact. Like, there's, like, an old one's Pact that's, like, core. But uh, that makes sense. Yeah, it is not Pact of the Old Pact of the Old Ones is, is very, like, psionic. It's, like, it's like uh, you get tele- telepathy and stuff like that, right? This one is uh, is is very sea based, right? Um, it's like you get. Uh, I actually, you know, honestly, you would also find this very funny. Um, one of the pact boons is a um, or not pact. I don't know what they're called. Just like one of the things you get for being this pact is a um, is an ink defense, which is if somebody attacks you with a melee attack, you can squirt ink everywhere. Um, and I was like, are you gonna be? Whenever you do this and you run away, please make sure you make the Zoidberg sound, okay? <laughs> but yeah, it's like uh, you know the pact stuff you can do. You can summon. Like tentacles or something like that, um, that that do stuff. Uh, you get this ink defense, which should be, is cooler than an ink defense. I'm I'm sort of like shitting on it a little bit, but like it's. A, I actually think it's like you essentially cast darkness, but the idea is that you are squirting a bunch of ink or whatever. There's a bunch of other stuff in there. Very cool. Yeah. <sighs> That's awesome. I am kind of jealous. I wish I had the time to play. Um. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what else for weeks? Um, oh, something I wanted to talk about last week. Sure. Uh, do, do hold on. Somebody, somebody in the chat has decided to spam our chat with. Uh, uh, do, do how do I ban this person? We are going to uh, do, do report uh, for bots. Uh, sorry. Uh, do do uh, uh, trying. Sorry, I want to get this person out of our chat because it bothers me. Yep. Uh, and bam. Um. Uh. Anyway. Um. Uh. I would say I. And wow. I have been playing. I've been doing the uh, Secrets of Azeroth stuff. Uh, sure. Uh, which has been super fun. Um, I think we can maybe even do a whole episode on this, but, like, there's, like, three levels of this. There's, like, the quest in the game, then there's, like, the community puzzle where it's, like, they post on social media somewhere an image of something you have to go figure out where it is. And then there's this, like, third thing, which is, like, a mount that you get for, like, doing things with people, um, but none of it's explicit in-game. And I love the stuff that's, like, explicitly in-game, but I hate all of the, like, community stuff. I just look up the solutions and go do them. Um... Oh, I understand. Yeah, the community stuff is like an ARG, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, I I understand. That is for the WoW Secret Finding Discord is a big community. Sure. Um, there's like a whole side of WoW that's like built for this stuff. I don't actually know. Did they get anything out of Shadowlands? Were there any big secrets that that happened in Shadowlands? I wonder. Uh, I don't know. Um. In uh, Battle for Azeroth, there was the Hive Mind mount, um, and then I think in Legion there was one mount. That was like part of like the community finding, and like it's just like 
crazy shit that the community has has to go through and figure out on their own kind of thing um that's interesting uh, but yeah, I don't think that that's, that's not the kind of puzzle that a person, an individual person is meant to do, um, on their own. That's the kind of puzzle that a, um, um, like a group does together. Yeah. Yeah. Like a big group all, you know, they all do together. That makes sense. No, I mean, but like the, the thing, I, I guess the thing that like really rubbed me is like the, the community mount thing makes a little bit more like that makes a little bit more sense to me, but these ones that were like, you know. You know, somebody tweets like "Great day in Eastern Plaguelands" and like a screenshot. It's like, and then you got to go find that. It's like I don't care enough to like figure that out myself, but I do care enough to like figure out like because like the quests for Secrets for Azeroth, Azeroth aren't like quest quests, right? They don't give you a marker. They're like, you know, like yesterday was uh, you know, you know, it's like uh, some cryptic stuff about Kazaran, Karazan rather, and uh, it's like. You know, and then it gives you a coordinates, which is, like, based on one of the earlier quests, you get this helmet that, like, gives you, like, coordinates from a reference point. It's like, I understand that. I, you know, maybe look up exactly where, like, Karazan is because I don't remember, right? Like, that kind of thing. Um, but I go and I do the puzzle, and I find it very, I find it very satisfying to actually go do the puzzle myself. Um, whereas, like, the community note stuff, I just don't, right? Like, it's like, that. You know, I will ask some, I will go, like, look on Wowhead and figure out, like, and put in the waypoint and fly there. Um, so, you know, but I, I do, I do think the, the Secrets of Azeroth thing is, is fun to do on my own. Um, so I've been enjoying that a lot. You, you said you haven't done any of that yet, right? Yeah, I, I want to do it before Wednesday because it goes away on Wednesday. Or, I'm sorry, not it goes away. I, there is a, a feat of strength tied to it that goes away on Wednesday. And I want to make sure that I nab that before the end. Um so that makes sense um is it wednesday morning at reset time or is it uh i don't know okay i think i think technically it goes away on thursday i think okay. it goes through wednesday because it started on labor day if i remember yeah, correctly yeah. so it's just the first two weeks so on the 14th is probably when it's gone um hold on let me look it up now because i don't want to give out bad information yet no just... feet of strength Until Wednesday, September 13th, 2 p.m. Pacific. Woof. Which is reset. Yeah. Okay. Which means we have to do it tomorrow, basically, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I don't know if the if the jump jets go away at that point, but, like, you know, like, I've done all of them except for today's and, I guess, tomorrow's, right, um, as it's been going along. Just because it's been fun. I missed a couple of days and I had to, like, catch up on it, but, like, the, you know, that's no big deal, but, like... Um, yeah, I, think it's, I think it's a fun and interesting thing to do. Uh, and trying to just kind of like, you know, figure things out on your own for the most part. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> what else have I done with my week? I have, um, I have started <laughs> re-listening to The Color of Magic by Terry Pratchett. I think I'm going to go do all those books over the next bit just because they're funny and they're fun. And, uh. I, really I was going to ask how Highlander is going, or not High Outlander is Outlander. going. I have so, um, that's the show I watched with my girlfriend, and uh, we just haven't had the opportunity to watch a bunch of stuff. She was okay. so she was, uh, you know, not that any of you need these details, but she was in between jobs, so she spent a bunch of time with me um, up up north. She lives in the in the city, and so we had a lot of time to like watch stuff, um, and so. 
Uh, now that Outlander Season 5 is done for us, we're going to be doing a show, a show of my choice, and I've chosen The Sopranos. Uh, so... Uh, okay hell yeah yeah i've been (laughs) i've also been watching the sopranos recently so we may even talk about it on the podcast imagine that yeah um and so we'll watch season one of the sopranos and then we'll watch season six of outlander um yeah yeah the sopranos has been the big the big show that i've been um Sopranos has been the big show that I've been watching. Um, and I want to say that I've been watching a bunch of like other stuff, but the reality is I kind of haven't been. A lot of my time gets eaten up by YouTube these days. Me just too. because, like, um, you know, I don't know. At some point, I want to say last year, I got really into, uh, I guess, watching VODs from the streamer Destiny. But, like, because those VODs, it's like two hours of content every day. It's just infinite content, as much as I could ever fucking want. Which is, on one hand, kind of great, because I feel like for a long time I was always really, like, addicted to content in the sense that, like, there was just, like, never enough and I was going back and re-watching videos because it just, like, wasn't coming out fast enough. But now I'm finally at a position where it's just, like, I can't watch everything. Like, this guy streams 12 hours a day and then cuts that into a three-hour video, you know, and then puts up another hour video on his other fucking channel. I'm not going to watch four. You know, like, it's ridiculous, right? Um, The other thing that I got really into... Have I told you about Sean Munger? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so. Did Sean Munger talked about my historic. Mike, Mike Munger, the economist no for you, Chicago. Maybe. Uh, Sean Munger is a YouTube. Is he's a historian, right? Who makes these? Who makes YouTube videos? Um, and he makes a really long. Um, drawn out history like historical videos on um uh i see he's written a book called zombies of byzantium (laughs) uh he just like he just like does these really like big historical sort of like deep dives or whatever um and since part of my thing is i am just like going and getting the details on these things because like of how much I feel like the game of sort of telephone communication tends to like kind of corrupt stuff. Um, I want to get to the I want to get to the heart of it. And at one point, I was seeing JFK conspiracy stuff with Lee Harvey Oswald. You know what it was? It was somebody. God, it was somebody on fucking Twitter. It was it, you know you know Shoe on Head obviously. Yeah. It was Shoe on Head on Twitter said, "I understand." distrusting government because of stuff like JFK, which they definitely did. But you at a, at a certain point, essentially you have to trust institutions, you know, so this was, was sort of her point, which I do agree with that point. I think that this is a big problem in sort of like Clarify modern exactly life. exactly what you, what, what point you agree with. Oh, I'm sorry. The part, I think it is important to trust institutions, right? Part of the complicated nature of the modern world is that we have to outsource a lot of trust onto the various pieces of the world around us, right? Our world is global. Globalization has happened. It has occurred, right? Um, which means there's a lot of things that I just need to trust. I need to trust, for instance, that the CDC is, you know, you know, recommending the correct vaccine, whatever, right? I need to trust that when Pfizer makes this mRNA vaccine, it is going to, you know, dampen the effects if I if I do catch COVID, right? I need to trust a million, uh, and that, that's just like the the. The, the the high 
ticket stuff. There's like a million little things, right? I need to trust that when I press the power button on my phone, it turns on, right? When I download an APK, you know, for uh, for an app from the App Store, that it that it works, right? This is, like, yeah, this is like institute- I, I pencil stuff, right? Like you know, no one can like make a pencil from scratch right now, right? Like- correct. Yes, correct. Exactly. And that and so all of this requires a lot of trust and a lot of institutions. There's a lot of people who don't have that trust. These people are conspiracy theorists and they're fucking morons. Okay. Anyway, so Shu on Head wrote this stupid tweet about how you need to trust institutions, but also that JFK was definitely, there was some conspiracy to kill JFK. And I was just like, you know what? I don't know enough to explain why she's wrong. Like, I, I can intuit this, this the is fact like that the, she's wrong. This is the kind of thing where it's like, never have an argument with a conspiracy theorist because they will know a lot of things that you just kind of implicitly trust that you won't be able to, you won't be able to... Um, uh, <clears throat> like refute in the moment. Yeah, right? yes, yes, exactly, exactly that. Yes, um, uh, you know, like I know I spent at some point uh, some time learning some basic rebuttals to Holocaust denial arguments. Oh yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they exist there, but like this is one of those things where it's like you know, I could like be- because learning how to refute them involves like learning the arguments the first place. I could spit a bunch of stuff at you that you probably wouldn't be able to. Uh, be able to refute that would make it you know would cast doubt on it but the answer is there's like a lot of like you know there's reason there there are explanations that you know that 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 make the the nihilists wrong it's just kind of like you know you don't you probably don't know them because you've never you've never thought stopped and thought about like the mechanics of committing the holocaust Right, like yeah, and like the intuition is is such a powerful force, right? This yeah. is the, this is the thing. This is the problem with the JFK assassination. Intuitively, it seems like there's so much more there, right? You have a guy who nobody heard anything out of, completely unrelated. Like his name is Lee Harvey Harvey Oswald. He has a job at the book depository, um, and um, he has a bob. He has a job at the book depository, and he just decides he's going to assassinate the president. Brings a rifle to the sixth floor of it, shoots the president in the fucking head, right, and then gets gets captured by the FBI. Is interrogated for hours and hours on end with no record of like there's no there's no like tape or anything of that, right? And then he walks out of that he walks out of that room in a routine prisoner transfer between the FBI and to jail. He gets shot dead by a nightclub owner named Jack Ruby. And it's just like, the, how on its face, how, make that make sense, right? Your intuition is constantly trying so hard in order to do that, which is where people come into the conspiracy theories, right? But the more you learn about this whole set of events, the more sense it makes in the most dumb, mundane ways, the, the, right? The, 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 For instance, one of the things Sean Munger says is, if you look at assassins in history... Assassins are almost always lone wolf killers, right? Outside of John Wilkes Booth, right, who was in a small criminal conspiracy to assassinate Abraham Lincoln, and that is truly a small conspiracy, as in a handful of people who all conspired to do this thing, and it didn't work out even close to sort of how they planned. This was not, a, this was not like a big, you know, the kind of conspiracy that's alleged for J- JFK is that literally Lyndon B. Johnson coordinated this with the CIA because of the, the Bay of pigs, right? You know, <clears throat> this is sort of like the level of stuff that people are going after or whatever. Um, 
But every other presidential assassination has been a lone wolf, right? Or attempted assassination has been a lone wolf. The, 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 <clears throat> the most recent successful presidential assassination of um, uh, President Abe of Japan was a lone wolf mm-hmm. with a homemade gun, right? Like, you know, it's 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 one of those. And you know, part of this is also like backwards-looking stuff too, right? Like, you know, JFK kind of ended the assassination of JFK, kind of like caused increased like caused that type of thing to be harder to do right now right like because people care about it more and to your lone wolf point you know you can intercept you can't intercept communications that don't happen right like um and that's part of it also the thing i always like to talk about is like the closest thing to a real jfk conspiracy theory is that uh the russians were afraid that they were going to get blamed for this because lee harvey oswald was an avowed communist that had defected back and forth from the ussr Right. Um, and uh, as a result, they spread some of the conspiracy theories to kind of like, you know, to to kind of distract from the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald was an avowed communist that had defected the USSR previously. Right. Like that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And so in my in my in the same quest that I have for like, I don't know, like World War Two stuff or, you know, like this Civil War. stuff, I went on that whole Civil War rant like yeah. a week or two ago. Right. Um, about how, um, <clears throat> you know, people, the, the lost cause, all this other sort of stuff. I wanted to get to the bottom of Lee Harvey Oswald. Turns out Sean Munger has made two feature length YouTube videos that are about actually so the first one is let me know uh is the guy that he he all he did was he made a a very well-made video about about the assassination itself and all of the stuff that happened at the book depository right um you know who saw what what did people testify towards you know all this other stuff his thing was he was like lee harvey oswald got that job at the book depository from his wife who was living with a friend who i'm sorry with a neighbor um and whose neighbor's sister's husband got a job at the book depository and they just happened to have a conversation about it and uh lee harvey oswald was looking for a job and she was like oh i'll give you the number and it's like how does a criminal conspiracy how does this crazy conspiracy happen to put jfk or to put Lee Harvey Oswald, this assassin, in the sights of JFK. But the way that he got this job was insanely coincidental, right? Um, other details, like the the route through Dealey Plaza was actually a big point of contention, um, and it wasn't solidified until six days prior. Uh, they just knew that, you know, JFK was going to be going through... Um, was going to be going through Dallas, but there wasn't a published route until a couple of days prior. Um just like a million of these like small coincidental things but the thing that like the human brain is built for is pattern recognition right it is you know the seeing most of a circle and intuiting the rest of it to make a you know i'm sorry i'm doing a poor job of explaining this the human brain looks at this image and sees a circle right even though this is not touching right it's because we have pattern recognition to know oh the curve is going to continue and this implies the the circle will complete right this is the most basic form of pattern recognition that like humans have and so whenever there's just like a bunch of coincidental bullshit people want to like fill in those details with because right because of that because of that sort of like pattern recognition anyway i've that sean munger goes in this huge thing it's a four-hour video he debunks literally every single conspiracy theory with just like the most 
insanely detailed evidence. It was great. And then he has a bunch of other videos. But really what it comes down to that I love about this guy is he's just like the most happy. Yeah, Did you ever have a teacher like this in high school who just like fucking loved teaching history or like whatever it was chemistry he's like that it's like it's like sitting in that guy's class again right sean munger fucking like cares a lot about this stuff and he has all of those interesting dumb little details that like make a lecture like i don't know stick in your head he has a bunch of other videos one of them about iran contra which i actually really appreciated because the details of that have always been fa like hazy um he has another one about um i don't know just a bunch of just a bunch of stuff uh, <laughs> so that. Yep. Uh, so, funnily enough, in, the, in kind of like the area of pattern recognition, I watched a video recently by I can't remember the, the gentleman's name, but I'll have to I'll have to find it about uh, uh, basically child speech recognition, which I thought was interesting. It's like, do you know what a wug is? Mm -mm. So, a wug, a wug isn't a real thing. It's like somebody drew a picture of like a bird, right? Like a bird looking thing, and says goes to a bunch of children. This is a psychology experience says or. Uh, Linguistic experiment, maybe? It says, this is a wug. If there are more than one of them, there are several, and, like, kids can do wugs, right? Like, they get most of that, right? Um, like, they, they essentially, they pluralize wug to wugs without explicitly knowing that that's the rule, essentially. Oh, right? sure. Which is the yeah. big insight, right? And, like, they can do this across a variety of things, right? Like, one of the ones that's harder that doesn't come through as often is, um, uh, like... Um, uh, you know, it's a picture of a man doing something. It's like, this man is gronging, right? Or this man, this man grongs, he is gronging yesterday. He, and then that one, um, it's like, you know, it's either, you know, a, a, you know, an adult would say like gronged or grang, right? Um, but like the kids were a little bit less good at that kind of thing, right? And so there's a bunch of study around like, what parts of language that kids intuitively pick up um, from their parent language, right? Because, like, this, like, replicates across languages, but, like, in, like, different ways, right? Like, you know, um, different languages pluralize words differently, and kids will, like, pluralize wug in the way that they're supposed to pluralize wug in a different language, right? Like, um, they won't all say wugs, right? Which, which, which is, like, an important thing because it... What was the guy saying? So... The, the interesting findings here are one that like, you know, it's like the, or the big important thing is it's not rote memorization, right? It's not um, that because like this book experiment happened in the 60s, I think. But it's it's not that kids kids memorize like all the things that are happening around them. They they like intuitively pick up on the rules and can apply them forward in, in a way, right? It's, it's not rote memorization. Yeah, this is uh, this is like Coco the Gorilla stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, Coco the Gorilla didn't learn sign language. Coco the Gorilla all... It's essentially the same the same thing was happening in Coco's head that happens in your dog's head when you pick up a leash, right? Your dog sees that and thinks walk. They understand walk, right? Um, and they'll react to the word walk. But it's just because they have a very basic and crude association between the object and the action, right? Um, but picking up on advanced language um, and linguistic techniques like like sentence structure and stuff like that is something that is truly uniquely human, right? Um, and there's a lot of stuff that, uh, that only humans do. Like um, animals can't talk to themselves in the way – or I'm sorry – like <clears throat> one of the ways we know Coco the gorilla did not actually know, could not speak English, did not know sign language, was Coco 
would never sign to herself, right? Um, but deaf kids who learn sign language will, right? Which is an interesting, like a really interesting observation. Uh, there's a bunch of other stuff with that that is like actually crazy too, right? Like um, in sign language, rhymes are signs that look similar to one another, um, which is like a thing that I had no idea was like real there's like there's a ton of this kind of stuff linguistically that it just like boggles my brain uh. <laughs> yeah no um it's funny recently I, I forget why i was having this discussion but i was like i bet you the quebec like you know the quebecois have their own version of sign language and they do um the uh but uh the part of it part of the thing that's like interesting there is that it's derivative of english sign language because english sign language is derivative of french sign language um yeah um, which is like a thing. It's, it's like a Wikipedia poll I fell down at one point. It's like, oh, I'm curious about, you know, it's like it started with the seed of like, I bet you the Quebecois have their own sign language because of course they fucking would um, because they're, they're, they're weird about their language, right? Like, um, but like it fell down a rabbit hole of like reading about sign language. It's like, um, I had always assumed that sign language was like a transliteration of like English, but it's not. Oh it's, it's, it's got its own like unique grammar and whatnot, which is, which is interesting, right? Like, um, yeah. No, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that stuff because there's stuff that happens in other languages that doesn't happen in ours, right? Um, where like Japanese has particles, right, which is kind of like spoken pronunciation or spoken punctuation, right? Um, and then there's a lot of stuff linguistically that happens in English that doesn't happen in other languages, right? Uh, for instance, the English, I think the most unique sound in English is the English R sound, or I'm sorry, in American English because even other, you know. English speakers, like our the way that we make the R sound is unique worldwide, apparently. Um, and there's just like a bunch of stuff with like the phonetic implications of of stuff like that, right? When I when I th this is something I always key in on when I'm trying to do accents for characters at D and D, um, like Mateo's accent, I'm trying to do a Spanish accent, right? And one of the ways that you do a Spanish accent is you condense your vowels because English has twelve vowel sounds but spanish only has five right it is a e e o u right and every word needs to conform to these five vowels so let me think so if i'm if i'm mateo the word ship is sheep right which is the same word as sheep, obviously. It's the same pronunciation as sheep. But, like, you, you learn those tricks, and that's how you can teach yourself, like, I don't know, accents. Hold on. I need to Google something. This is the thing that I thought was, like, super funny. Um, you know, I'm going to be careful about this. I know some stuff about... Um, the way that basically um, certain voice assistants do things. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, because of your project, right? No. Actually, you know what? I'm not going to talk about this. I, this is getting too close to stuff that's not my getting interested. That, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, um, we, we're over anyway, so yeah, we, can, yeah. we can leave it here. Listen, language yeah. is interesting, okay? Words have connotations so, and definitions. I think I saw on YouTube that I can definitely <laughs> talk about is... Um, I watched another video by different linguists talking about, um, it's, I think it's like an Australian, it's like a younger Australian thing where they say, or nor, instead of. Oh, oh I think I watched this video. Yeah. Hold on. Where it's the, it's like the, the guy and he's bald. He's like old and British and yeah. bald. And he talks about the, the, yeah. Or okay, nor, I watched that yeah. Same video. Yeah. 
Well, it's funny because my, my, my girlfriend will say, like, Ornor to me. I'm like, what is this from? It's like, oh, it's from, like, this mermaid show. And it's like... <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's funny. I, the reason I learned that guy was because of vocal fry, right? Oh. Which is the, you know, vocal fry is the like, oh, that sounds so great. Well, m- most famously, um, Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr., to bring it first, full circle, has um, a medical a condition that gives him like very bad vocal fry. Really? Yeah. I actually did not know have, that. Have you uh, never heard him speak? I don't know that I ever have. I mean... Yeah, I don't know. I've never heard him see. I do. Men have vocal fry. Um, a lot of a lot of men, male announcers use vocal fry, or not announcers, but like narrators, because when you drop your voice really deep, you naturally get a vocal fry on the undertones. And so, if you're listening to like a YouTube video, a lot of the time, YouTube videos um, with with like deep male voices have a lot of vocal fry on them, which is uh, I think of vocal fry as being a thing that like young women young American women do, right? But it was interesting to hear him be like, oh, no, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I always think of it of like like Jimmy Stewart, I guess, right? Like, you know, like, oh, yeah, or maybe Don Knotts, right? Like that kind of like, oh, boy, I don't know what's happening, right? Like, the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, you're about to drag me into another thing, which is like I have on my Twitter seen recently like um, the newest version of like, um uh what's it called like uh chad versus incel discourse is like the the, the pitch of your voice and someone made no! a website that like it like measures the frequency of your voice and tells you if you're like a certified chad or a no hope incel um, <laughs> i at a certain point that's got to be trolling right that's like that is the most troll bait i feel like i've ever heard oh my god <sighs> okay, now we're we're super over. Yeah, we're super over. <laughs> we're talking about nonsense. If you'd like to email Listen, us about some some terms, talk about language. Okay, yeah, some talk about vocal. Fry. If you want to talk email us about anything you talked about this podcast, from wizards to vocal fry, you can email us at some games gmail.com or podcasts.com. You can follow us at twitch.tv slash games where these go out live, as well as youtube.com slash nursery games. Uh, rate reviews wherever you find, um, uh, wherever you find podcasts, all that good stuff. Uh, buddy, you have anything else you're looking to promote? I do want to promote. I have two games to promote, okay, Mango? Because we're launching two games in two weeks. Are you ready for this? On this Thursday, September 14th, we are launching Behind the Frame VR. Uh, this is a PSVR 2 title. Um where we took our, I don't know, hit game behind the frame, uh, very well-received, beautiful indie game from a Taiwanese studio. We took that game and we put it into VR. It is now it's now a VR game. Uh, and then the second game, and the one that I uh, have talked about a bunch on the podcast, and we're going to do a podcast episode, I'm sure, is on Astrea, Six-Sided Oracles, uh, which comes out next week on September 21st. Um, this is the dice deck building roguelike, which I'm very excited for everyone to get their hands on, uh, and really go deep on. I have so many thoughts. I have like the most insane thoughts about Australia. <laughs> that podcast is going to be super fun. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, this is a closing thought. We talked all about conspiracy theories and we didn't talk about jets, jet fuel can't melt steel beams. Uh, oh my God. God. Oh, holy fuck. That would also bugs me. I, I saw a video on Reddit today that was, that was debunking that by two minutes by a blacksmith. He was like, um, he was like, let me just, let me just prove this point to you. Yes. Jet fuel 
burns at 1500 degrees and steel melts at 2600 degrees or whatever but you want to know what happens when steel gets heated up to 1500 degrees he pulls out a big steel bar and he puts it in an anvil and starts wiggling it around because it's like basically a noodle right <laughs> yeah all right well with that i'm gonna say until next time dear listeners until next time, loyal listeners, except for the lizard people, the <laughs> lizard people, you guys can stay and we're going to keep, we're going to keep doing, this is our Illuminati meeting. <laughs> Secret podcast. Yeah, yeah, some germs talk about the new world order. 